we're in Psalm 29. We're continuing our, our series through the Psalms um, in an exploration of, of how the Psalms contribute to our mental health. And so we're looking at a whole variety of subjects and issues and emotional states. And, um, and we've seen, you know, last week we were in Psalm 22, which is really one of the most uh, despairing and, and distraught of the Psalms. This week we're in Psalm 29, and we're looking instead at, at, at like a deep emotional state, we're looking at a, uh, another, another frame of mind. And so one of the characteristics of the people in our, in our secular age, and unfortunately can also be a characteristic of us, um, is that we may affirm or believe in the existence of a spiritual realm, spiritual beings, God. Um, the, the challenge for us, and obviously our culture, but the challenge for us as Christians is that, is that it's easy for us to slide into this place where um, we're not really sure if anything in the spiritual realm um, really will make much of a difference in our day-to-day lives. And even if we believe in God and Christ and the power of the Spirit, there's a, there's a, there can oftentimes be a disconnect between our affirmation of those doctrines and what we believe to be true, and just on a day-to-day basis, how, how, how sincere uh, and, and vital we are in pursuing those things. I have a friend who, when anything good happens in her life or in the life of her family or friends, she attributes it to the universe. And, and I've had a few conversations with her, and it's clear that what she believes in is a personal God, a God that cares for you and, and works things out for your good. And, and Hebrews says, if you believe in God, you must, or if you, if you come to God, you must believe that he exists and that he is a, a rewarder of those who seek him. So she, she sees this aspect of God, but she's very, she doesn't call him God or her God, or, you know, it's just, and she doesn't want to talk much about what that God would be. I've asked her some questions. Well, what are some other qualities and characteristics, you know, and just, just, there's just this uh, lack of desire or lack of confidence in attributing anything um, firm, <laughs> like here's who God is, except that he is good occasionally, or this, this universe. Uh, another friend knows that there's something beyond what we see in this world, but again, we can't really have any conclusive ideas about who or what God is. Um, but when she faced death in her family, she just found herself at, at a loss for any resources for comfort or perspective on, on, on what to think and for herself and then the people around her. Uh, I was reading a book in preparation for this, uh, this message. It's called Your God is Too Small, written in the 50s by a guy named J.B. Phillips. He's also got a nice paraphrased uh, New Testament that's really great. But he says, no one is ever really at ease in facing life and death without religious faith. And so, you know, I just, this, this conversation I had with, a, with another friend a few weeks ago, um, no thoughts of God, no concern of God until faced with death. You know, but, but that's not all of what God is concerned about. That is not all of what God is present in. Um, we live in a world outside of just life and death experiences, but that's kind of really where, where in our world these ideas and concerns and questions pop up. It's because our perception of God is too small. Um, and, and I think that it's important to ask ourselves that question, um, is our own perception of God too small? Uh, 
is he not big enough to come into our lives in, in, in a real way and make a difference? And I, and I think there's, there's some, you know, how, how would we know? And I think that there are some characteristics that we can maybe identify um, or some criteria. And so I've, I've, I've put these together that just kind of this five points that I think if, if, if these would be true, then I think maybe our God is too small. When we, we, so we, if we experience sustained trials in our lives, but the amount of and consistency and perseverance of our prayers don't reflect a, a deep and sincere conviction that God would actually do anything. And so our, our, our prayers betray our lack of belief that, that God would do anything because we're really not praying in any sort of disciplined or consistent, persevering way. Or when confronted with magnificent power or beauty, there is little to no praise or acknowledgement of God's creative power or strength behind what is being beheld. You know, this morning I went out to shovel the path, short path between our, 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 our back porch and, and the garage. Um, and, uh, you know, was, the snow was a lot thicker this morning than what I was hoping it would be. Um, so I got the shovel and, and I just, you know, I took the first scoop and it was so light. It was so light. Whereas last week or a couple weeks ago, I went out and, and it wasn't as thick, but I, I took a scoop and it was incredibly heavy. And it just, it just came to me, isn't this incredible? I mean, just look at the snow. It is, I think it is obviously so beautiful and all of what goes into making snow. You know, if, if, if there's nothing inside of us that takes the nap instead and says, you know, the, 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 the diversity an expanse of God's creativity and his beauty um, and, and his power in all of these variations of what we just observe and experience in the natural world. It's, it's amazing. But if we never find ourselves going that way, maybe our perception or acknowledgement of God is, is a little too small. Or when experiencing God's good gifts, like love or sharing or friendship or food or clothing or shelter or recreation or learning or discovery or any other thing that God gives us that is good. We fully experience the joy, but rarely ever stop and, and make some sort of acknowledgement, mentally or verbally or some way of, of, of acknowledging that it was God who has provided these things and who has given us the joy in experiencing these things. James tells us that every good and perfect thing is from God. Or on the other end of the spectrum, when confronted with <clears throat> horrible evils personally, or if we observe horrible evils in this world, if we don't have an inner yearning, an inner longing for a world beyond this, a world where, where justice and peace rule rather than violence and bloodshed and hostility. If, if there's not that inner yearning and prayer and asking and crying out, God, will you do something about this? Maybe, maybe our perceptions of God are too small. And I think this last point, like when the ugliness and the guilt and shame of our sin is beyond anything that a dying God could ever cover over and heal through his expression of love, through the sacrifice of Christ. Like if, if, if we're so overwhelmed by our sin and vulnerability and weakness and shame, and, and if we're so overwhelmed by that, that God dying could not possibly cover it. Maybe our God is too small. 
And so we could go on, but I think the point is clear. It's a challenge for us to see God in in the day-to-day life. And our world does nothing to help us with that. The call of the Psalms is exactly the opposite. I think think, um, Lawrence mentioned or Deirdre mentioned in in one of our meetings that that the the Psalms take us into really a different world. It's, it's a world where, where God rules, um, and he is seen everywhere, and he is our hope, and he is our refuge, and he is our joy. It, the, the, it, the presence of God is what the Psalms is about, dwelling and dwelling in that presence. Um, we can experience, you know, we, we'll always be growing, but the, the Psalms really affirm in, in, their, in their content and in their spirit that we can come to a place um, either in our in our deepest points of despair or in our greatest points of joy, you know, Psalm four that Lawrence preached on. I have experienced joy more than any that the world has ever experienced, even in the times of the new wine and the new harvest, which was like the biggest celebration of the year. And the psalmist says, "I've experienced more joy than that." But obviously, there's obvious the, the, the psalms that just have great periods of despair. We're going to look at Psalm 88. It's called the Black Psalm. There's nothing positive in it at all. And sometimes we, we can feel like that. Um, but regardless, the Psalms really say that, you know, whatever time or mood you're in, you can be in the presence of God. You can be in the presence of God and, and have some sense that he is your refuge and that eventually he's going to come through. So there are at least two ways where God's presence and work are, I think, made real to us. And, you know, in the Psalms, and, it, and these are maybe just kind of contrasting uh, ends of the continuum. Um, I think one of the ways that God becomes increasingly real to us is when we sense his presence um, in his care for us in a real personal and intimate way. And that's Psalm 139, and we're going to cover that later in the series. Um, the second way is for the other end of the spectrum, um, where God is so powerful and glorious and majestic that we are simply overwhelmed by uh, how magnificent and majestic and powerful and authoritative that he is. Um, and we at the same time fear him, but then need to run to his presence because the other alternative is that we're going to be destroyed. <laughs> we either run to God and seek refuge and find refuge and peace in him, or we're going to be judged. I mean, and that's the reality. That's the reality. And that's really the reality. This is, the, this is what Psalm 29 is about. Being aware of the majestic presence and power of God, so much so that you tremble, but then run to him. Because, you know, judgment is inevitable. So we begin the psalm with this repeated instruction for the heavenly beings to ascribe or to give or to grant or to acknowledge in a verbal way um, through some expression, glory and praise and honor and strength to God. And there's a, there's a, um, it's an obligation. And I want to point out, he's not, he's not calling humans to honor and ascribe glory and worship to God, but the heavenly beings. And so I ask myself, why the heavenly beings and why not humans? I think obviously it's, it's implied because we're reading a text that was given to human beings, by human beings. I think there's a couple reasons why. So he is, it seems like this psalm came out of an experience that he was having 
in the midst of a thunderstorm, all right? Which oftentimes happens. We, we experience God's presence and power in a very real way in the created world, and, and our thoughts go to God, um, or at least they did in David's life. And so, the, you know, it's, and it's in the heavens, and oftentimes the scriptures refer to the skies as the heavens, and so here we have, he's addressing the beings in the heavens that are in the presence of this, of this thunderstorm. But I also think that um, by, by, by really putting the, the heavenly beings in this place of obligation, um, it puts us into a, a greater place of obligation. If the heavenly beings are obligated to worship God, what about us lowly human beings? And, and we see these heavenly beings going this way, and I think that, you know, it's always easier for us to do something if we see somebody else doing it, right, the right thing. You know, we're kind of cowardly generally, but if we see others kind of leading the way, we can follow. So I think what David's doing here is it says, listen, the, the heavenly beings are an obligation to worship and honor God. Human beings should be following right behind. Should be following right behind. So we are in the presence of beings right now who are ascribing worship and honor and glory to God for who he is and for what he's done. So why ascribe honor and strength and glory to the Lord. The text is clear, and, and it's, it's subtle, but it's really powerful. God is owed worship. He's owed it. The text says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. His, his, his name is his identity. It's who he is. God's very being puts an obligation on all of creation to worship him. We owe it to him. We owe it to him. It's due. It's like a bill. Here's the bill, human beings. You owe God your worship and your adoration and your affection. So the rest of the psalm then explains why. <laughs> why do we owe God? Why are we indebted to him for our worship, our adoration, our affections? We'll get to that in a moment. But the third thing I want to point out, so we're, 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 we're under this debt, um, and then he goes into how. How, do we, how does he describe how we should worship God? And the word says worship there in verse 2, but literally the term should be translated bow down to. Ascribe glory, honor, and strength to the Lord. Okay, it's not, we don't give the Lord strength. What we do is, verbally express that strength and honor and glory and power belong to God, that he, that he has it already and that we are acknowledging it. And we do so through literally bowing down. Bowing down. Engaging in the physical act of, of bowing down to God in worship, it, it broadens our experience of the act of expressing worship to God. So obviously we can do it with our minds, we can do it with our speech. But David here in this, in this psalm is pushing us to, to envelop and, and engage all of our body, all of our bodies in the act of worship. It, it, it focuses. There's no distraction. Our entire person's mind, body, spirit, soul is engaged in the act of worship. Now, it's not saying that every time we pray, we have to bow down. Okay, we, Psalm 4 instructs us to pray as we lay in bed and meditate and reflect on God. So there, it's not saying that, but I think that there is value at times 
in, in engaging your body in a full way in, in worship. Sometimes it's dancing in, in the narrative, and sometimes in, in the Psalms it's dancing. Uh, myself, I generally sit in my chair, all right? Try to get alone so I'm not distracted. <clears throat> I, uh, I work through several lists depending on the day. Um, I, I, I just have a sense. I mean, it, for me, it's very difficult to engage in the activity of the day without first going to God and, and asking for his guidance and his blessing and his direction. And on occasion, on occasion, because my chair is, is, is uh, when I'm at home and next to the bed, on occasion, I feel this overwhelming burden or sense of, of, of listen, I, there's a, I, I, feel, I feel burdened to, to kneel down and to bow down and to pray. Not always, but occasionally. And, and, and it's, it's, I feel this deeper sense to engage in a more full way. You know, I, I can't explain it other than it's a, I don't want to say it's a deeper level or it's, or it's a more meaningful, it's just different. And I, and I think that there's something to it that, that David is drawing upon here. Um, but the second aspect of how he calls us into worship, um, he says, bow down to the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, the idea of holiness is that we're, we're set apart. Set apart, um, pure, okay? And oftentimes it has this sense of, of kind of just, just morally pure, but it's not just morally pure. And, and, and clearly the text isn't saying that, that we can only come to God when we find ourselves to be in this place of moral purity, Okay? Because most of the time we need to go to God, not all of the time we need to go, go to God, uh, we are in a place of deep crisis where we're very aware of and clear of our sin. We see plenty of Psalms where in the, in the midst of us experiencing a guilt and shame and fear, we've got to go to God. So it's not go to God when you're perfect, okay? That's not what he's saying here. Um, the worshiper of God comes... And this is what I think the distinction is. Not as a person whose life is given to the, to the passions and desires of the world. All right? The worshiper acknowledges that, that God is the source of, of life and prosperity and happiness. That, that, that's where the worshipers, if a, if, a, if a worshiper is sincere, then they come to God with this, you know, I'm throwing off the ways of the world, or I, I, at least I'm wanting to throw off the ways of the world. I am no longer seeking the world for my life. I'm seeking God. And that is really what makes us distinct. The worshiper is distinct, not because of moral purity, but because the person has come to a place where they recognize that God is life, that God is life. And that's, what, and that's what makes us, see, we, see we, 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 we become what we worship, you see. We become what we worship. And the worshiper, the true worshiper of God, this is the, the person that the psalmist is, is, is calling us to be, is one who recognizes that we want to become Christ-like. We've given up that old life. And that's really what, so the, it's a great phrase, in the splendor of holiness, in the beauty of, of having delight in the law of God, in the beauty of sincerely seeking him for, for refuge. And it's that, it's that character of a person who's given themselves in that way for God. So we're in there that we're, so David puts this reader under obligation, full-bodied expression of worship and a state of sincere delight and devotion to him. 
And then we come to the body of the psalm, really. So there's three qualities that um, David brings up here. It's his authority, it's his power, and it's his, it's his majesty, all within this context of what he calls the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord. So we put ourselves into the setting that David is in. So he's, he's, it's, it seems like he, he is somewhere observing a thunderstorm. It seems like he might be on the, the Mediterranean coast, Israel's coast with the Mediterranean, and, over, and looking out over the seas, and he sees this massive thunderstorm, and he hears this massive thunderstorm. And it, and it seems like that as he hears the thunder, he kind, of, he, he, he kind of thinks of that being God's voice, this, this uh, earth-shattering, um, everybody-hearing noise that is an expression of, of power. It seems like, because all of these characteristics of God are all within this context of God's voice, his power being demonstrated, his strength being demonstrated, his majesty, his authority, is coming through his voice. And we're going to kind of wrap that up at the end of what, of what that means. And so the, um, the authority of God, and so let me just take a step back. The thunderstorm begins in the northern part of, of Israel and it ends in the southern part of Israel and it comes into Israel through the seas. And so it's like this, this nation-encompassing storm. All right. So the first thing that, that David sees um, and is meditating on is, as he's experiencing the storm and he connects it to God is authority. And the, and the idea of authority bookends the body of the psalm. At the beginning, he sees God's authority. He says the voice of God is over the waters. And immediately... If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 said, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And in Genesis chapter 1, you have this anticipation, because chapter 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And so there's this anticipation that the Spirit is going to do something. And you have the same anticipation here, and it's, a, and it's an expectation of of creation-type power. What is God going to do as he's hovering over these, these waters? So that's at the beginning. Then at the end, you have this reference that, that it says God is enthroned over the flood. God is enthroned over the flood. So you get this, this vision or this, this calling back to creation at the beginning. And at the end, you have this king who is sitting over this destruction, judgment. So you have the authority of God in both things, creation and literally death, judgment and death and destruction. And that God's authority is, is demonstrated in this because he sits as king. It says the Lord sits as, as king over the flood, enthroned. And so the... the um, this, this authority um, is a, uh, you know, if you, if you think of the flood in Genesis chapter 6, uh, he is abolishing evil. He is abolishing evil. And so you have this, um, this sense that he is, the, 
He is the creator of life. He is the taker of life. He is the creator of beauty and he is the, the dark destroyer. And um, that's, that's not always a pleasant view or experience of God, but it is the reality of God. And so we're going to see, you know, how do we respond to that? Well, then David goes into God's majesty, and, it, and this isn't referenced. The, the primary one is God's power and strength, which would be the third one. This idea of majesty. Majesty, you know, we, we, we sing it in our, in our songs, but we don't really talk about it common language very much. Something is majestic if we are drawn into um, elevating it because of its beauty uh, and because of its power and because of its strength. It, it invites us to elevate it and to hold it up as, as in, in this place of high status and honor. If something is doing that in us, and we feel it, and our minds and our hearts and affections go there, and we hold this thing up, it's majestic. And so God is majestic. God is majestic. And this thunderstorm demonstrates that there is uh, a beauty in God and a power in God that draws us up to acknowledge. I, I, you know, I'll be honest with you, I think snowstorms do it as well. There is, there is something great and beautiful and powerful beyond us that should cause us to elevate God, okay? Recognize him as authority, elevate him in terms of how we value him. The third one is power. So, and it's really just comprehensively working through this entire process in, the, in, this, in this psalm. So it starts at the northern border of Israel in Lebanon, and the power of God, it says, breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Now, the cedars of Lebanon were known to be the, uh, the, the, the uh, largest and strongest of cedars. They used the cedars of Lebanon to build all the important things in the nation of Israel. So they're the largest and strongest cedars, and, and God is moving through with this storm, and he is just snapping them. Moving south, it brings fright to the nations. And so the, the nations, the peoples, and the other nations around. So it's not just Israel, it's, it's all the surrounding nations as well that this storm is, is overwhelming. And it says that the people are just scattering like, like animals do when they are frightened by a, by a predator. So if, you're, you know, if you've watched those nature videos, I think this is the second time in the Psalms I've already referred to these nature videos. Um, you know, N.T. Wright says the older that he lives, he's got that great book on the Psalms out there, the, greater that, the longer that he lives, the more he sees why the psalmist spends so much time referring to nature. Because God is just really incredibly visible in it. And Romans chapter 1 would affirm that. The eternal power and divine nature of God are seen in, in his creation. And so, you know, you see those, those videos and there's, you know, there's a pack of antelopes or, or whatever and there's a lion just kind of sitting there and it's hidden, but then the lion makes itself known and they all just scatter like crazy. That's, that's the imagery here that David has. The thunderstorm is so great, it shakes the land with its lightning and thunder, causing animals to prematurely give birth. And so the animals are so frightened that they're going into labor prematurely. That's a, that's a very, that's not a, you know, that's, that's, that doesn't sound like a good thing, David. No, it doesn't. It doesn't sound like a good thing, but that's what happens. And then the last line of this, of this body, you come and it says, all in his temple cry glory. The people of Israel, so the nations are scattered. 
in fear of God and his power. The nation of Israel, they don't scatter. They go to God in his presence. They go to the temple. They want to experience personally God's authority, God's majesty, and God's power. And so it concludes with, this, with the people of God worshiping him. And it seems like the psalm is providing for us a model. Are we going to run like the frightened nations when we, are, when we see and experience the presence of God, his power, his majesty, his authority? Or are we going to come to, to God? Are we going to seek him out? Are we going to want to be in his presence? And then the psalmist requests, in the presence of God, God, we see your power, we see your majesty, we see your authority. We ask that you would protect us. We ask that you would give us peace. We ask that you would give us refuge from Psalm 2, the introductory idea. God is our delight, Psalm 1. God is our refuge, Psalm 2. Kiss the Son, but fighting against him. And so that's what the psalm is, is, is really directing us to. And again, if we come back to this idea that all of these qualities are really ascribed to God's voice, we have to ask ourselves, why, why does he not just say, you know, why isn't it just God? Why is it, it his voice that we ascribe honor to and that is demonstrating this strength? Um, you know, God spoke the world into being. God called the nation of Israel to himself through speaking. God terrified the nation of Israel through his voice. We, so, we see both in the Old and New Testaments, God, God the Holy Spirit is working to fulfill the voice of God. Jesus is called the Word of God. He is the very voice of God. And the psalmist sees that the authority, power, and majesty of God are demonstrated through his speech. Through his speech. If we, and if we, if we, if we ask ourselves, as we read through the psalm, we ask, well, what is the application? What is the psalmist wanting us to do? Remember, we owe God our worship. He's wanting us to worship God. He's saying you owe it to him. So if we ask ourselves a couple questions, the first one being, okay, what do we, what do we think when we see God's power on display in creation. When we, when we see God's power in creation, does it draw us to think of him? Do we acknowledge him? Do we see his work? Do we see his work in the world as an expression of, of his authority, of, of his majesty, and of his power? Do we see these things as an expression of his word, the activity and work of Jesus Christ himself? The scriptures teach that Jesus Christ created and sustains all things. And his work in creation is that sustaining work. The seasons and all of the, the, the global forces that make up keeping earth alive is all in the hand and the power of Jesus Christ. Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And get this, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. These are the everyday things in our lives. We see them, in, in, and we have an ability to see, you know, like when the hurricane was going over Mozambique last year, when we have tornadoes and cyclones, we just turn on the TV or get on our computers, and we can see the entire globe 
you know, the planet enveloped in all of these storms and, and, all, and, and not storms and beauty. We have an ability to see what the psalmist never saw. Do we see and acknowledge God in these things? And do we recognize that it is Jesus behind these things? Jesus. The, the same Jesus that came to earth as a baby who died and resurrected on the cross um, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. It's the same, same person. It's Jesus Christ. Or do we simply acknowledge these things as a force of nature, scientific explanation, a naturalist explanation, and we're not drawn to think that you know, Jesus is behind these things, the voice of God himself. And so I think the other thing, when sometimes we do acknowledge God's power, God's authority, God's majesty, and we are utterly frightened of it. And we scatter. And we scatter. We, we tremble in fear and we run away. We tremble in fear and we run away. We don't want to draw nearer to God's presence. We don't want to draw nearer to that, to that power. We don't want to draw nearer to that voice. Because we primarily are thinking of God not as the refuge creator, but as that destroyer of, in the flood. And that's where our thoughts of God kind of come to an end. And we don't want to be destroyed. We don't want to face the voice. We don't want to hear the voice. We don't want to face the judgment. And so we stop there, and we don't enter into his refuge. We don't enter into the, the protection of that power. We just see ourselves as the receivers of that power and judgment. So in each of these cases, I just want to point out, the Psalms provide a way of retaining, re, retraining our minds and drawing us into a world where God's power and authority is very present and very active. And it draws us into a world where we can grow in our, in our ability to see and experience that power and also to enter into God's presence so that power and that authority is used for our protection and for our refuge rather than as punishment. That's what the Psalms do. They are trying to train us to understand God is our refuge. His voice is a delight. It's not, some, it's, not, it's not just judgment. It doesn't end there. And the Psalms provide us a way for us to understand that. We do deserve what those in the flood received. We do deserve the, the punishment that Jesus took. But that's not the gospel. And we can't run away from God forever. We're going to face him someday. We're going to, and we're going to face his voice and hear his voice someday. We can't keep running from him, scattered, afraid to talk and enter into his presence and to let him heal us with his power. And so eventually we gotta, we're going to have to come face to face with him. And the psalmist is, wanting, is, is modeling for us a way of life where we can come face to face with God on a, on, a, on a daily basis in a very real way and experience his majesty and his power and authority, but in a way that really senses it as a place of refuge. It's his temple. It's where he dwells, but it's a good place. You know, if you're familiar with the um, Chronicles of Narnia, you know, Aslan throughout the entire series He's not a tame lion, but he's a good lion. You know, 
And it's a really great image you have. There's, a, there's an authority and a presence and a majesty that Aslan has throughout the entire series. And there's this hesitancy around him. But those that get to know him come into his refuge. They come into his refuge. And again, that's what the Psalms are really pressing us to. Do we acknowledge and worship the Son that God has set over the earth and who rules through his voice? That's what Psalm 2 is instructing us to do. That's what Psalm 29 is instructing us to do. Or do we stay in a state of fighting against him and scattering when we hear his voice? 